Hey everyone, Austin here. On today's episode, Ken and I discuss Seven Samurai, a 1954 epic samurai drama by director Akira Kurosawa. Set in medieval Japan, the film portrays a poor farmer's village who has recruited seven samurai to help defend their home from an impending bandit attack. During our discussion, we do a deep dive into the history of medieval Japan, the town's defensive strategies, and the morality of the characters through the lens of Sun Tzu. All right, so so what did what did we what did we watch this time? We watched uh, Seven Samurai. That is what's in front of us. Yeah. All right, so what what are for your first impressions? I this so this is the movie that like this time around I chose this movie, and I'm very curious about your what your first impressions were of this film. I obviously loved it, and I chose it for you to watch, and and I'd like to hear your initial thoughts of the movie. First impressions. Well, if we were talking about the first half, I think it could have been 20 minutes instead of two hours. Um, I mean, there's a lot. I think a lot of it is just uh, uh, maybe a time period and cultural difference between like what's necessary in the beginning of a movie. Like maybe some of the humor went over my head because of the language barrier. I mean, don't get me wrong. Love the love the movie as a whole. The first half, though, I think because obviously in our analysis of the film, we really didn't focus focus at all on the first two hours it's all about the last hour and a half yeah definitely so it's kind of like i don't know it's kind of like lord of the rings like building to the last building to like a last battle scene i guess you have to kind of have the quest to get there but uh i mean i like how i guess what year was this movie made again it was uh let's see it was made in 19 pre-1960 yeah because uh 1960 was when the magnificent seven came out um, where, where did I write it down? I thought I had it. Oh, uh, it was the 54. 1954 was when it was, uh, yeah, runtime came 207 out. minutes. So let's just think about that for a second. So I think, I think part of it is like the modern, modern cinema would have treated this a lot differently in the way that like they introduce these like characters of characters. Like since all of these characters have a specific, um, like role, as you'll see, as we'll talk about, you know, the master tactician, the disciple, the right-hand man, you know, the, the crazy one. Um, they all have a specific role, and they kind of, like, I guess this is just how movies were in the 1960s, like, and it was shot in black and white, so it felt older. It was, like, they kind of just, like, showed up, and they were a little bit like their character, but now, if it was, like, Ocean's Eleven, it would have it done, like, a cutaway, and it would have been, like, this is the disciple. It would have been, like, very, like, Tarantino, you know, like a like a cutaway of like this guy's crazy and this guy's a tactician, like a Kill Bill style. Do you? Do you I imagine it like being like a Kill Bill, like 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 it's showing all the different character traits. You know what I'm saying? Do you think it's because we now know and understand the trope of the yeah. the like the hero gang? Like, maybe this like helped create it. Maybe you're right. Maybe yeah. Maybe because right. from from what I was reading, this is I mean, it's in literature. It's been done before, but as as a cinematic structure this was one of the first films that 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 kind of pioneered the um the the hero's quest hero collection uh strategy of spending a portion of the film to assemble the heroes who would ultimately be a collective hero that saves the town or or saves the planet or i mean like nowadays we have the avengers but like you know in a way 
do you think like I mean like almost like the Avengers are in movies together, but the Avengers also have solo movies. Well, the lit like I guess to be to your first point, like the literary trope of a gang of people, you know, finishing a quest has been gone gone back to you know like Jason and the Argonauts and the quest for the Golden Fleece, like back into ancient Greek writings. Like like there's things this this type of this kind of banding together and and uh, completing a task has been around for a while. But but the advent of cinema and like the early you know the early twentieth century and you know especially moving to you know, from to actual what nineteen twenties into actual sound films or nineteen thirties, like color film, like this was kind of on the cusp of like the new cinematic age in the post World War Two boom. And that's actually also interesting thinking about Japan and their role in World War Two and how this movie was right after it and how it probably helped this is a whole other conversation, but how this kind of movie was one of the first pieces of art to kind of come out of post World War Two Japan. So in a lot of in many, many ways this film was a kind of a trailblazer. So I guess Viewing this in 2017, we're so used to the oversaturation and the over kind of um, simplification in a way of like how like this this whole scene when they're in the town waiting and they one by one you know wait for the people to come in and they like kind of fake hit them and they you know it, some people take it well some people don't and they kind of wait for like a very long time but they're all like in this weird person's house like things are just unclear but I I started to like the first. The first like hour, I was like questioning it, and I was like, "What? Why is this taking so long?" Like, I know what's, I know what they're trying to do, just get there. But then it kind of started to seem like the pace of the movie, as we talked before, was almost a little like scene by scene theatrical, but kind of in this weird, it, like the because the pace was kind of off, it kind of put me in the in the film, like it took me out of my comfort zone and put me in this kind of weird observational state where I had to really pay attention to like who was who and I was really conf- you know like because you can't really identify the people's names they're all kind of foreign to us in Japanese language and you can't really read the subtitles so yeah even even now I can't pronounce it wasn't a single one. it wasn't like super clear like who was who until they were like walking to the village and then they were like walking and I saw who was leading the pack who was behind who was the younger who was older but I think generally that was like kind of a long-winded uh you know, maybe a little bit of a confusing review of the first half of the movie. But overall, I mean, I think the film took us to a very, uh, how I say it, like exciting last hour and a half that would was really, really obviously something that we would like to pick apart as I was watching it. I was like, oh man, this is totally going to be something that we can like talk about and the tactician of it all. But I, mean, I think the film deserves all the credit it gets. Uh, something I'd probably like to watch a second time and I definitely want to watch more of Kurosawa's work. Um, I was talking to a friend that actually went to film school and he suggested a couple other uh, movies for me to watch. Oh, I th- yeah. I think I'll... I think I'll. It's kind of like you read the first book of a new author and you figure out their style and then if you get into some of their other books, you start to, you'll start you probably start to look back at this movie differently. Um, I mean, I love the movie. I don't know if I can give it a... I give it a 10 out of 10, but it's it's up there. I, I think it's it's a great film. It's uh, I think it's number seven or seventeen on sights and sounds greatest films of all times. Well, it has the because it carries weight and significance by helping create. Uh, it's more of a looking back on it kind of thing. Like if this movie came out in twenty seventeen, I don't know what I would think of it. Yeah, but it's 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 of its era and of its time. I mean, if we think about it, Edison probably didn't invent the best light bulb. He just invented the first light bulb. <laughs> yeah. and I think Kurosawa probably didn't. In- like he probably didn't curate the perfect 
story, but he created the first type of this story. And I think that's why it's so significant. Yeah. So what about you? Sorry, that was more than five minutes, or give me give me one minute. What do you, what did you think of the movie? Obviously, you love the movie, but watching it again, what did you think? So this is this is the third time I've seen the film. Um, the first time I had, I came across the film completely unknown to me. It was just on a list of a hundred greatest films I should see, and I like, I love. Uh, samurai and and um, I think the year I watched this, I had also watched the last samurai with uh, Tom Cruise, and I was I was almost on like two best samurai films of all time. <laughs> I actually I actually think that's it's it is one of yeah, the greatest like heroes tales stories and and timepiece uh, stories. Uh, but is, as far as a story, I actually think that in a lot of ways I enjoy the first half of the film just as much. I mean, obviously I enjoy. The battle half, the, the the story being the collection of the heroes being part one, and then the battle at the village being part two. Well, I can see that being the case, like the second or third time you watch it, because you know what's coming. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's a second time around scenario. Because yeah. you, yeah, I would I would agree with that. That this this time that I watched it as the third time, I really looked at each character and who they were and why they were being selected and what was important about them and what maybe their 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 subtle symbology or or the the subtext behind them was yeah and I, and I also I also think that's that kind of goes into the way that I kind of researched the film as well um, I, I the the battle is so amazing and and it's obviously a take on um, the art of war, and then there's there's a tactical approach to it, and and when I when I dove into the film, I thought that I was going to start completely looking at the org- organization and doing all those diagrams first, and and then I realized, wow, I actually kind of care a little bit more about who these samurai like who these samurai are, why are they hungry samurai like what is this time period like is is this like the movie really on like kurosawa really only sets it up as this is the end of feudal japan it's it's an era at the end of the samurai era and and it's a time of unrest in japan and he really only gives you a couple sentences of Mm -hmm. of um yeah and you have to like make sure you see it too yeah you could easily miss it yeah because they're in the right in the beginning yeah and there's also um Oh, the credits are so amazing at the beginning because the way that the Japanese, the the graphic style of the Japanese text, the way it's organized on the opening scene, uh, opening um, uh, uh, credit reel with the drums in the background makes you perceive Mm. the text as almost army formations, Mm. like getting ready for battle. I mean, it's just like a very subtle thing. But this, this is... You're asking me like my impressions, and I guess what I'm saying is, as a third time watching this film, I really was taken by the amount of care and time he gave to each one of these characters because they, and I think we'll see this later, they so much represent all these different types of people and different types of samurai who are drastically affected by the moment in time that they exist in that I think unless you start to peel back the layers, you kind of just see them as all do good samurai helping uh, this, this village. But when you start to peel back each of the characters, you realize that they're all part of this struggle that's happening in Japan 
at this very specific like five year well, period. Let's jump, let's jump into a little bit of history. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, right. Actually, just uh, while you pull up some of our um, graphics, our uh, parallel graphics that we make, um, it's it's interesting thinking about seven or uh, the the last samurai. Because I mean, so I noticed in your um, in your weapons diagram, like basically the advent of the the gun, which we'll talk about a lot here coming up. Um, this is like right at the onset, and the last samurai is like right at the end, and those two films almost book bookend each other. Because this is supposed to take place in like the fifteen six right fifteen sixties fifteen seventies what the 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 film was made in nineteen fifty. Well, the, Six. the setting of the film. But the setting of the film takes place in 1586. And that's like 20 years after guns came into Japan, right? Like, this is like right at the onset. I'm just, yeah. And the, and the Last Samurai is like 1850. Like, it's like, I don't, I'm not going to, it's definitely like 300 plus years later. Yeah, The Last Samurai occurs right at the end of the medieval period, right before the, um, um, uh, what would it be called? The, like, the early modern japan because because time. there's a scene the scene in the end where they have like the gun that's like the mini gun when they like are like they literally are invent, like the gatling they're gun they're like inventing machine guns at that point yes so it that would be man that'd be an interesting study if we did if we looked at that film and we compared the kind of a bookend of i don't know we obviously don't want to do exclusively japanese samurai movies but it would be an interesting um follow-up to this well so so check out check out these um kind of like amazing pieces of information that i found so the 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 film takes place in 1586 and i really it, all all you really get from the film is that it's in medieval japan and it takes place in 1586 and i i wanted to understand all right what what is when did like medieval japan happen what are the what like what are the different like Good eras question. Good yeah question. <laughs> like like as opposed to say like king arthur's like medieval period but like what what is this period of time and what's bookending it and what's happening and basically if you look through the history of japan the medieval japanese history takes place uh between like 700 bc and it goes all the way up until like almost the 1900s like uh 1868 or something like that um and that's um when modern japan happens and this period uh between um, the seven, like 700 and, and 1800, um, during medieval Japan, it was, was a time where you had a series of emperors who were ruling over the country. Then around 1200, um, a military rise in the, around 1200, samurais took over, um, sam- like samurai, uh, militias grew and the military leader became what was known as the shogun. And it was a period where the emperor and the shogun almost had equal power because of the military might of the shogun itself. And so what you have is a unified Japan that then becomes unified by the military power. Now, the military power run by the shogun um, eventually hits a breaking point where uh, a shogun is is um, the the main shogun is removed and the entire country falls under um, disunified unrest where you have all these different uh, um, uh, like sub countries not sub countries like, like warring sects yeah warring sects and and each of these warring sects ha- uh, are run by uh, what's called a 
daimyo. Mm-hmm. Daimyo, yeah. Daimyo. Yep. Yep. Okay. And the, the daimyo basically become, if you think of Japan as broken apart as a bunch of states, they become the the like uh, the mayor of each of these states mm-hmm. or the ruling governor. More of like city states. Yeah, city states. Yeah. Okay. Because like back then you had a stronghold with a fortress and surrounding farmlands, which exactly. was a state, but like the only real safe part was the stronghold. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. And so... Um, as we start to get into the middle of the medieval period, we have these these city states that are run by these. Uh, the the shogun is overseeing everything. Um, the city states are run by these daimyos, and the daimyos all have their own private militias, their own private samurai armies. And the ideal scenario for the samurai was to find a place in their life as a servant of a daimyo, yeah. and and. What we see is um, at the end of um, the uh, 16th century, that lifestyle of the samurai uh, living under the daimyo is is um, about to be stripped away. The emperor has regained power in, in Tokyo and is spreading uh, mm-hmm. across the land, reunifying uh, or recapturing all of these uh, daimyo-run city-states, and the samurai's um, like position in their world is about is about to be essentially removed, both as a fighting force that represents the daimyo, but also as a weapon, uh, because the advent of, or I guess the introduction of the musket into Japan happens right in the mid 15th centuries. So you, you basically two things are happening at the same time: a, a governmental shift is removing the shogun's power, the daimyos and the samurais, and the introduction of the gun is removing the value of the sword across the country. So it really it really is like um two things. It really is like the knight or the cowboy and I can see the western the adaptation to the wild west now where in the uh 16th, 17th, 18th cent like 1800s uh, even in the 1900, I mean, no, not 1900, but like into the 19th century, like the cowboy in the Wild West and Westward expansion, this idea of this like kind of lawgiver, this this kind of errant knight, and even in the idea of like medieval knights in Europe, how they were like under the under the um, under the service of a king, and and basically as times have changed, like the kind of uh, the kind of individual assassin or individual warrior of lore becomes this irrelevant. Uh, kind of, you know, someone suffering with like uh, PTSD in some ways. Like they came, but they're like their war was their was war was life, and now it's like they're kind of floating in a way. And it's mm-hmm. it's interesting also to see that uh, the farmer's village is right on the edge of two of these two of these uh, empires or city states in a way. So yeah. So so the the year that Kurosawa picks for the the the, the setting of the film. Um, 1586 is such an amazing year because it's in the midst of a territory grab uh, by the rising power of, uh, I think it's uh, Oda Nobunaga, okay, who was starting this campaign of recapturing um, the main island of Japan. He is then murdered by his disciple, who's then murdered by that guy's disciple, who is... Uh, Tokyo Tomi Hideyoshi Hideyoshi okay let's call him Yoshi okay so this new guy Yoshi who um, had murdered his boss who had murdered Oda okay this new guy Yoshi he essentially 
takes over the uh, the the empire group who is now capturing all of the main island Japan. And so 1586 is right at the period where um, uh, the oh, what's what's it called the um, oh the 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 is the Izu Peninsula. Okay, mm-hmm. so if when when you look at the the and this is now back in real life when you look at the actual setting of where Kurosawa filmed, um, he chose to film in a rural valley on the Izu Peninsula, which is the location in 1586 that was being cap- recaptured by the empire by mm-hmm. by the emperor and and uh, the growing up the regrowing of the empire. It's the location that was being recaptured. At the date that he set, so his filming is true to the kind of contentious nature of that that space. So basically. when when you when you start the film and you have the farmers go, when you have the older farmer say, "Go find hungry samurai," it's not because he's saying to the young kids in the in the village, "Go like go and like maybe you'll find a hungry samurai." It's like they're he, there. He's like literally saying literally go to town and you're going to find hundreds of hungry samurai yeah. because everybody the next city state over just got their entire world ripped away from them That's and what's so what's even like crazier is if you look at the historical yeah if you look at the historical battles that occur on the Izu peninsula um there's actually a castle siege that happened in 1561 and then it rehappens again in 1591 um just a couple, like like fifty or hundred miles away from the setting as well, mm. and Kembe, what's the main guy's name? Kembe, Kem, Kembe Shimada. Yeah, Kembe Shimada. Him and his uh, his uh, friend that he re meets are laughing about the uh, fact that they both had to jump into a moat because they were part of a castle siege. Mm, interesting. So what what you have is literally Kurosawa has curated the setting as being at the exact location that mm-hmm. w- is is producing hungry, hungry samurai and he's curated a tactical leader for the group that's down the street from a historical castle siege yeah and what a time i mean back to make the point again i mean what a time to tell this story in the 19 late 1950s because this i mean people i mean you know people often forget now that japan was on the wrong side of world war ii yeah you know, and they lost a lot of you know a lot of people a lot of money like in a lot of time uh, to that conflict, and I mean, this was literally right afterwards. So, what it, you know, people weren't necessarily making movies about what just happened, like we were. We were making movies about the glory of World War II, and they're looking back to more of an historical past, saying like, "Well, what battle can we actually look look at that's we're now far enough removed from that we can kind of create art to display, you know, to to talk about it." It was still very you know, the the kind of stigma was very raw in talking about World War II in Japan. And still, like, that carried over through the generations up till this day about uh, about not talking about the conflict in a lot of ways. It's like a lot of, like, Nazi Germany, basically. I mean, if you if you look at any war period, a lot, like, the, almost the most powerful period pieces that show up in literature and show up in movies are either right on the onset of war or right at the end of war. And they cr- they ask these questions about... What is the shifting dynamic? What are we gaining or what are we losing because of war? And then at the end of um, uh, like World War II or World War I or, or any, any of these um, major like world battles, they ask the same questions. What, what have we lost or what, 
what are we going to gain from these battles? And this is just another version of this. It's just taking place in Japan. Yeah. And I think that's, I think the power of the characters and the power of the setting is that this film takes place at this threshold moment where everybody in the film's life is changing on the micro scale in their their personal life, but then on the macro scale as their entire identity is about to shift. And and it's so it's so amazing that this is happening to the samurai, but the focus is almost thrown to the farmers mm-hmm. who are really this micro tale of this larger issue that's happening to the, the samurai themselves. Yeah. So that like when and this is going back to like what did I appreciate about the film? But I think on like a second watch, I was really interested in who these characters were. And when you look at the timeline, it just it shows how deeply the the depth of who not the individual characters that's different, but the depth of who the samurai people were at this like moment. Okay, so um, the first character, the leader, is Kambe Shimada. Tell us about him. I, I mean, he's the archetypal good guy. He's, Wise, sincere. He, yeah, he's 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 the old black man who works at the <laughs> office who gives everybody advice because he's just seen the world and he knows what's up. But he's Japanese. But he's Japanese. Like he like he's he's the Samuel Jackson character. He's he's the guy who just has seen it, knows what to do, and is going to lead everybody through it. Yes, he's and, the he's genuine but humorous and always knows the ne- the next step. The guy who has all the answers. Yeah. So number two, Gorobei Karayama. So this, so Gorob, what is it? Gor Gorobei. I don't. Gorobei. They say it a little faster. It's like Gorobei. So I constantly get Gorobei and yeah, the, and uh, what's it, how do you say his name? Shichiroji. Shichiroji. Okay. Yeah, those two guys are like very similar. I get. I get they're those. Both bald, they're both like bald too. Yeah, yeah. but well, so Gorobe, he has a goatee, oh, which is okay. like that's his defining. Um, that's what his his standout feature. But they're they're both like right hand man, like old like old like old friends, like good dudes. Like they're just kind of like, you know, they're they're kind of one the one so the one is like a legit right hand man who, who lives in the end. Uh, so the, it's the friend who lives in the end. So Gorbe dies. He, he dies. Yeah. Gor, okay. Gorbe is the archer. Shichirochi dies. Uh, Shichirochi lives. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. I, so, so the only way that I'm remembering this is that one becomes an instant ally and the other is an old friend and the yeah. old friend lives. Yes. And I think it's, and it's, they have that moment of reflection. At yeah. The at the very end. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. But they're, they're kind of like this, they're kind of the not the glue, but they're they're the steady kind of not not. There's no like specific trait about these two guys. It's like as unique as the other four afterwards. Like the other four are sort of like it's the main guy, his two dudes. One is an old friend, one isn't, and then they but they have different weapons. And then like the the other the other four guys have like more like really really noticeable differences. Mm-hmm. So Kyozo, the skilled swordsman. He's he's an interesting character. My favorite character is he? Oh yeah, for sure. I would I would say he's actually my second favorite character. He's the best. My my first one being we'll we'll get to him, but uh, you'll completely disagree with me. But but uh, what's how do you say uh, Kyudzo? Yeah, sure. So I'm not gonna get it right either. I'm just trying (laughs) my best. So so Kyudzo is um, he shows up as 
like he he I guess he represents the 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 pinnacle of weapon mastery. It's yeah. like the gunslinger who yeah. always like hits the target. He's like Legolas or something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think what he like his purpose is I mean like when when he's introduced, he's literally getting into a fight. Uh, what is it? It's like a fight of honor <laughs> yeah, that he see, doesn't the, he doesn't want to be in. He just murders somebody with one with one. That's that's the kind of shit that the, I don't think the first like I get that and looking back at it now, but I'm like, what is this ten minute scene where this guy is gonna like look at this guy for ten like slowly? He's like, I don't want to kill you, I don't want to kill you. Nope. And it takes forever, and he like pulls his sword out, and the other guy like looks at him for like three minutes, mm-hmm. and he's like, please don't do this. And the guy like makes a shitty little lunge at him and he like chops him and like he just dies instantly and then like walks away. It's just so uncinematic. Well, let me But I like I get I like it looking back, but it just seems like it's eight minutes too long. Let me ask scene. you this though. If they had just like let's say that the first half of the film, there's seven samurai. Let's say the first half of the film was seventy minutes, okay? Mm-hmm. And they gave ten minutes to every character to have their kind of They in- could have done intro. that, but it was two okay. hours. It was two hours. Uh, yeah, okay. Was- but what I'm saying is would you have felt better if they had given ten minutes to Kambay, who's the leader, and then two minutes to everybody else? Sure, I'm not. I'm, I'm not saying. And, and, I'm just saying it's they, different. If I'm they, it's different. If I'm they had different. done that, it's different. Do you think you would care less that he spoiler dies at the end? And it's different. I, I'm, all I'm saying, you're just defending the film because you want me to like it, and I do. But I just <laughs> all I'm saying is, I'll just make one point. Yeah. It's. It, it, I know it's just a time period and cultural difference, but like every character, this is what make it makes it theatrical. Is we talked about this briefly. They either are really, really happy, really, really sad, super, super serious, or like really like their emotions are so obvious mm-hmm. that it's like almost it like has to be like a. That's just how acting was then. You know, like it just. Like the goofy, the crazy guys is so crazy, and the serious guy is so serious. Yeah, you know what I mean. And the young guy is like so young and in love. Like it's all like such a trope. And like I guess it's because they invented some of this stuff. But it's just, it's just, it's almost sometimes hard to watch because it's such, it's so, so, so obvious. Yeah, that's what I'm saying with this like scene with, with Kudzo, the skilled swordsman. It's like. It was just it it was just a little drawn out for me, and I think that's a repetitive thing. But I I think I got over it, and I almost enjoy, I almost appreciated it as the film went on. But at first, I was like, "Come on, man!" I, I I guess I would have to liken it to the first time that you go to see Santa, like with the first like the <laughs> How first are you like, that to Santa? so when you're a kid, the first time you go to Santa Santa, there's the waiting in line. There's right. the like sitting on his lap. There's getting the picture taken. There's like get, t- talking about the present. There's like talking with your parents afterward about like what you told him. And every single part of that is new and exciting for the first time. And then you never really want to do it again <laughs> because you know it's going to be exactly the same thing. And this film is really the point at which in, in cinematography, everybody's seeing Santa for the first time. Right. Everybody's being introduced to the the wise old leader or the skilled swordsman sure. or the 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 overly pedantic no i, I get it yeah I, I think we we gotta move on but i i yeah, yeah, yeah i yeah. totally get it okay so so okay kudzo's he's he's obviously the he's the the weapons master he's like the yoshimitsu yes you remember like remember in tekken like all right never mind no i actually right, do so <laughs> yeah yeah so the last three 
we have Hayashi Hayashida, mm-hmm. the woodcutter. Who gets the least amount of screen time. He does. Yeah. But you meet him while he's uh, chopping the axe, right? So at least he has like a, he has like the, like the, that's his scene association, right? Do you, do you think there's some kind of parallel drawn between, he's the first samurai who's really given up on samurai work and mm-hmm. also the first samurai to die? Yeah, I think he just kind of provides like, well, yeah, maybe you're right. I don't know how in-depth they meant that to be or how meaningful they meant it to be. But I think, uh, I mean, it definitely helped that him put me in the, my mind. I mean, because he was like doing an act like that, he I mem- remembered him, you know, as they were walking. Yeah. I wish he had used an axe, though. That would have been cool. That would have been kind of Gimli, like a Gimli-esque yeah. kind of. Yeah, yeah. But that would have yeah. been, been too straight up. Like he just pulls the axe out of the wood and yeah. starts trotting down to the town and then he would have turned the cat to zero and he would have been like how many did you kill and the cat zero would have been like i killed seven and he's like i killed eight yeah 106 107 104 five so so the next guy cats zero you tell tell me about him the young attractive man in love see he yeah he's that's who he is he's the disciple he's the intern he's the young guy of the group who they can rag on a little bit but you know he also fills the void of the love story during this, which also is kind of weird as it goes along, but that must must that might have also been a time period thing. Um, he's the guy who steals away to the field to meet the young lady and lay in the grass and has a fresh face and hasn't seen the battles of war. Mm-hmm. And he lives in the end as well. So the kind of um, hopefulness of youth moving on, right? Did you did you look into uh, what it meant to be a samurai or a, or a farmer when you were doing any of your research? I mean, generally, I do though. I mean, you're saying that he had to be celibate, basically, as a samurai. So, so to not meet women, like a priest, almost. Actually, it's kind of the opposite. The like, oh. samurai just kind of took whatever they wanted. Okay, I didn't know. Yeah. But, but um, in the in in feudal Japan, the class system was a fourfold. You had the samurai who, who was at the top. The farmer was actually the second highest. Yeah, so then why didn't that guy want his daughter to meet samurai? So, so listen. there were two, like, listen, womanizing so, rebels. Yeah, like, listen to this, listen to this. Yeah. Okay, so you have, you have samurai who's at the Worst top. Worst character also, by the way. He was just the angriest character. He beat his daughter in, in the mud because she looked at a man. All right, sorry. Okay, universally we agree that he's not a good guy. Terrible, par- terrible he, person. Yeah, ends up living, though. He makes ugly faces, by the way. <laughs> he, really, he just has an ugly face anyway. Yeah. But So you have a fourfold system, samurai at the top, Farmer's actually second. Then you have the artisan who's making utensils and tools. And actually at the bottom is the merchant because the merchant's actually not producing anything. The merchant's just selling things. Right. So it's it's really about protection first, who's feeding everybody, who's providing tools for everybody, and then who's just kind of creating an outlet for these three other things that exist. But I, like, I bring this up because you were born into one of these four tiers you right. were it was illegal for you to move between these four tiers and it was also illegal for you to marry illegal illegal i guess this was like the 1580s yeah were crazy back then. The, like the, you had your station and your station contributed to the empire where you contributed to the shogun um hierarchy and to step out of line was to break the law so the act of uh, samurai, uh, like samurai would show up, fraternize. They would also rape, and and in some like parts they would also fall in love. But at the end of the day, none of none of the farmers that they were um, fooling around with could ever transcend that barrier. So, the, really, the father is so angry because he knows even if his daughter is in love with um, Katsushira, she is 
barred from actually being with him. And he's barred as well. He just doesn't have as much to lose. Yeah. All right. Whatever. It's fun fact. I like I like fun the facts. His, yeah, I like the history. I guess things are different. But yeah. that's cool. Yeah. I, I would imagine some samurais were also more like more like monks in a way where they like had these kind of separate like they grew up in the samurai village and I, maybe not maybe they were always just warriors but the, it seems like there would be some that were more like priestly in some ways right mm-hmm. um okay last we have which is not his real name kikuchuyo which he doesn't give his real name but they give him that name or he fakes it that's his name the goofy crazy ridiculous guy which i like but austin really loves and i also just think he's kind of over the top but go ahead so i, I he is absolutely my favorite character. And I think he's actually designed to be everybody's favorite Maybe character. Maybe he's a third watch favorite. Yeah. I, I like if I had to rank them, I would say uh Kits uh how you say it? Kits Kitsu I can't say my favorite guy's name. You should have given them code names. You should have seen this coming a mile away. Yeah. That's uh okay. Kitsa Chirio. Chio? Kitsa Chirio? <laughs> Katsuchiro. Uh, it has the word sushi in it. Shushiro. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'm just I'm gonna call him the farmer samurai. So well, so I think we should call him the crazy one. I don't think farmer really resonates. He's insane. He's the crazy one. He I is. Get, he's, I get that he's, he's kind of like, insane. I get that he's a farmer, and that's kind of coming from your research that he's the farmer guy, or whatever. But like, just call him the crazy guy. All right. So the, the the crazy samurai. What what I love about him, and I think he's he's I think he's created to be everybody's favorite character because he kind of represents the audience. He represents the outsider who wants to be part of this thing that they're not and be revered and, and acknowledged as being something. And like, like I mentioned with um, uh, the farmer's daughter, he was born into this farmer society where he was not allowed to be a samurai. And what you see is, the creation of a character who is barred from any advancements in life. He's angered by the fact that he can't advance. And he's kind of, uh, what is it, snuck his way into the samurai um, the, the samurai story. And, and he's trying to fake it. He has that scroll of his family history. Um, uh, and and it's, what's, what's so funny about his name is uh, Kitsu Chirio. Uh, is actually a, it's like a two parts, like he can't read and he doesn't understand numbers. So he doesn't understand that he picked a girl's name and it's akin to something like Betty Sue. Um, and, and the actual translation is like, uh, so Betty Sue, two words, his name Kitsu means flower and Chijo means 1000 generations. So he picked a name that literally means a thousand generations of flowers. Okay, he's the Betty Sue. He uh, like, like mid-century Japanese humor. I yeah, like. yeah. And so when when they find out his name and they look at the scroll, like it's just like he's just filled with the fact yeah. that he's trying so hard to be what he's not. Yet what he's not, it, like what he actually is, is like painted all over him. Yeah. By his temperament, by his history, by his inability to prove himself. He's a drunkard. He's crazy. And and. I think the success of his craziness also comes from the fact that Kurosawa didn't give him any lines. He roughly told him how he should like oh, act really? in each of the it films. Was like improv? And just told him to make everything up. Wow, that's interesting. So everywhere he's standing and sitting and whatever he's, he's doing. Just cra- he's just like this outlying kind of amoeba, like running around like this crazy yeah, yeah. blob. Yeah. He's not even like worthy of full instruction. He's just told to make it up. That's funny. Yeah. No, I, I like I I think he's almost he almost reminded me of like a like a like a 
Greek poet. Like he's wearing the heavy eyeliner. He's like very theatrical. He's like telling like the story. Like he's he's just like 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 literally like in ancient Greek times. Like he has to be like so exaggerated to get his point across, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's what he was. What kind of put me in the mindset like, well, maybe this is actually like a theater production rather than a movie as we see them today. It was more of like yeah, he was a real real actor in that in that sense. All right, so. What's your next? Well, let me let me ask you this. Let's kind of close out the first half of the film. I'd like to close out the first half of the film with this question: If you were if you were going to cut some parts of the first half of the film, what would you cut, and what would you keep? Well, I don't think it's a what would I cut. It's a how would it be redone. I just think, like the scene where. Um, Kambe Shimada, the leader, is like coaxing the guy to come out of the barn. He like shaves his head, right? He shaves his head and he kind of uh, fakes like he's a monk to he, give the he's guy He's saving the child from the to thief? To save the child, right? Okay. Yeah. That scene, I get, I didn't get till later in the film how it kind of showed his like cunning and virtue and how he uh, like tricked some. He was very smart and wise to kind of create that scenario. It's just that... That scene was so long. And I know I'm doting on this, but like that scene was like 12 minutes probably. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it seems to me that our modern, maybe it's just our, our attention span is, is just, it's just fucked up now. I don't know. But like, it just seems to me that I was, so, I was like, I knew what was going to happen and it, I was just waiting for it to happen. And I, I think, I think I would, I mean, now that would be done differently, but, but I'm not saying it was done in any, I think it was the genius in the way it was done. I just think, I think it would be interesting to see a remake of this film. And I don't know if it's even possible, actually. I don't think they could even create a movie at this pace and then at this, uh, this kind of level of production. Like it just needed to, it really, I didn't know that it had sucked me in until like a couple hours in and I was finally ready for the battle. And I think that was, that buildup is what made it happen. But I, I think if it, I think the film could always be tighter. Every every any film could be more succinct. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just I would imagine I would like to look at the storyboard and and know and 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 see what they actually were kind of planning. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I'll I'll just I mean you know first half of the film I I think I went back and watched it now, um, you know, and I've been a lo- little long winded in explaining this, so maybe you can cut some of me out and shorten this down a little bit. <laughs> but like I just think I think you could have done without some stuff, but. Maybe that made the pace of the second half better, and it's you know it's apples and oranges for me. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. You can't really appreciate the the kind of culmination of something unless you do have build up. So I understand it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's to go back. Let's let's jump in uh, to the town and set the stage for the tech. All right. Um. So where where does where does uh, help me remember where does part one leave off and part two begin? Um, so they, they leave, they recruit everyone, they walk down the road, um, the crazy dude is running behind them and they kind of come to the town. And I know that's the, that's the point where they start, um, they meet the older man that lives in the mill. And I don't know if that's just after part one or right at the, or just after part one or at the beginning yeah, that that's kind of the point where it shifts. I don't know the exact scene where it shifts, but mm-hmm. they they start to think about laying plans. So, so they've arrived at the village. They've talked to the old man. There, do they start training? I feel like 
what was it part one ends i think part two kind of starts when they're talking to the old man i think like them walking over the road over the hill is kind of the end of part one i mean for all intents and purposes that's the end of part one in our eyes when they make the journey to the town and they kind of see that they're coming towards the town yeah that's part two i mean i guess part two you could say could be the onset of the attack I, I'm not exactly sure, but part part two to me, the second half of the movie starts when they all, the seven, are walking on the road. Oh, okay. So you you see part one and part two as as kind of the everybody being collected, and now that everybody's collected, part two is really all the efforts at the at the town. Yes. And so I, I'm trying to remember. I the 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 scene that sticks in my head is they've gathered the farm people they've started making all the preparations and then there's like one sect of the farm people who are really upset that their houses are on the other side of the river mm-hmm. and they start to like mutiny and can be basically like in his only kind of act of violence like kind of emotional violence towards everybody really sternly goes if you walk away i'm literally gonna murder you <laughs> like <laughs> he's like look people like uh you're you're we can't defend your stupid houses out there there's four of them you can rebuild them already all you're literally all gonna die unless yeah. you don't sacrifice your house yeah so so like you you're now in my army like yeah well that shows how that he was realistic too he wasn't just like this warrior that come in and save the day like he knew they were they were in dire straits and he knew sacrifices yes. had to be made and then so he gets everybody back in order and there's like a moment where holy shit, like, they've kind of planned out this whole defensive strategy, but is there a chance they might fail because of just the heart of the scenario? And then I think it part one ends, and then part two is is the whole battle, um, uh, like, right right after that. But, uh, like... So let's... let's. Do you want to generally lay out the defense strategy of the town? Yeah, I mean, do, do you want to talk about that? You're also very interested in the, the defensive qualities sure. of that as well. But yeah, I mean, so well, I guess I'll lay the premise real quick. It would be, I mean, we have a lot of kind of analytics going through the rest of this, but um, we should lay the boundary and say this: none of this could have been possible uh, without the, which I don't know which, I forget which of the townspeople it is. I think it's the abusive father, crazy-faced, <laughs> terrible person that is uh, farming, and he hears the bandits be like, We'll be back in one year's time when the barley's ready. Like, he, yeah, it's the first scene of the movie. So, like, the whole premise is that they, they have the townspeople have the knowledge and time to prepare themselves against a more powerful foe. And we're going to get into talking about how Art of War by Sun Tzu, the kind of seminal military text from 2,500 years ago, uh, is also. Um, relevant to this uh, we don't have to get into it now but so the bandits so they the because the townspeople have the knowledge they're able to prepare which as art of war refers to is is probably the most valuable thing piece of information you can have right who the you know the um, the people that have that are more prepared the people that people that arrive first are going to be more prepared that you know the highest form of generalship is to foil your enemy's plans, right? Mm-hmm. So that that ultimately is the undoing of the bandits. Is they technically have the stronger army. They technically have more experience on average across the board. They technically have uh, superior weapons and horses, but their strategy doesn't change. So because the townspeople have knowledge, they can get help. They can create defensive strategies and predict. Right, whereas the kind of lack of hubris of um, of the attacking bandits 
their 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 aggressiveness never changes. And there's a quote that says, "So the student of war who is unversed in the art of varying his plans, even though he be acquainted with the five advantages, will fail to make the best of his men." So even if you have every advantage in the book, if you if you just keep ruthlessly attacking at every corner like like the like the bandits do, they're going to lose in the end. So because the townspeople have knowledge, they can set up their town in a way they can structure their defenses with varying kind of these juxtaposed varying uh, different <clears throat> gates, which Austin will explain. Um, they can be ready for the onslaught of the bandits. So we'll we'll talk about the the uh, layout of the town now. So. What I found so fascinating is, I think in, so in one part I'm making an assumption, and another part I, I read a little bit about Kurosawa and how he structured this. And the assumption is, I believe Kurosawa wanted to construct this amazing battle. And he wanted that battle to be embedded with a lot of intelligence in both who's attacking and how it's being defended. And... um I think to accomplish that, he used a lot of traditional Japanese arts of war, and he used uh, like Tunsu's. Uh, actually, uh, he's the Chinese art of war, uh, but it was written first, and then it was trans, uh, basically brought into the Japanese art of war. So Tunsu's as influential as it influenced later later uh, doctrines. Uh, but so I think Kurosawa wanted to construct a very intellectually rich battlefield then as a director i think he wanted to curate it in a way that the audience would immediately be able to understand with very simple cues Mm -hmm. and the way so from what i read um the way that he attempted to inform the audience of how this battle was going to take place was he physically wanted to put a diagram in front of them and that's that whole purpose of the map that that Kembe and and um, uh, his right hand uh, man uh, samurai are using as they walk the entire town. So the the map very quickly lets you understand that there is a center of this town, and that very simply put, the battle is going to take place in these four cardinal directions: mm-hmm. north, south, west, and east. And you don't really need to understand the complexities of the topography or the complexities of like the, 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 the nuanced complexities of the topography of the town or where everything technically is. All you need to understand is that there is a north side, which is abutted by woods, and they're going to strategically create it as a breach. There is a western side that's abutted by a hill, which they think would give advantage to the the bandits and they think they'll attack their first two they, right? yes yeah. exactly uh and very much correct so yeah um but all you he's need to right do about everything literally he's right about everything yeah it's <laughs> it's, 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 it's amazing but it, like he, yeah. he constructs it in such yeah. a way that he's yeah. both simultaneously right yeah. but it's really it's it's kind of like what is luck other than when preparation meets opportunity yeah, yeah, yeah. And like he like he just built his own luck into the battle because of his knowledge of tacticians but like uh, so, on the western side, it's completely acknowledged that like they might attack from the hillside. So let's just build a big wall. On the south side, they go, oh well, um, we we want to like bar off as many like sides as possible. Let's just flood the southern field and build another wall. And then on the eastern side, they go, 
oh, well, we got this bridge. Let's just rip up the bridge and build another wall. So all you really need to understand the, the, the town itself is this like amoeba shape and it's got these like funneled um, entrances and then there's like a curated sense of where the woods are and there's a stream and there's a field and the topography runs a very specific way. But you don't, you don't really need to know any of that. You just need to know that there's a north side that's the breach, a western side where they're going to attack, so let's build a wall. South side, we're going to flood, so let's build a wall. And an eastern side where there's a bridge, let's throw the bridge and let's build a wall. Yeah, and what's interesting, if we relate, relate this back to Art of War, the they both have advantages in offense and defense. So the actually the bandits have an advantage ta- attacking downhill. Yes. So they, ha- they actually do have a pretty actually significant advantage. So the bandits from an onset, from a numbers perspective, from a topography perspective, from a, them not knowing there's samurai here, like they're doing the actual right thing. The bandits are. Yes, they're, they're, absolutely. Their initial attack is actually is um, is a positive, a net positive on their end. And their act of foraging, although immoral, they like taking the barley and stealing it, and for and like and while they're not in their homeland, is a, is the correct strategy in a war. Like they they're doing the bandits, even though they're the bad guys. Their 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 first instinct is actually correct. So and, one of the things that I've never realized until this third time that I've I've watched this is they're not just bandits they're actually samurai bandits yeah they're hardcore <laughs> like, like yeah they're not just like weird little like robbers like they're they're like they have legit swords like they have guns like they have horses they're well equipped they're well armed mm-hmm. they have provisions like they're, they're legit army men yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's nuts so they, they yeah the bandits have just as much the bandits almost have uh innate advantage yeah and the samurai build in tactical advantage well i actually made a chart later in the later we can talk about the chart i made comparing comparing the comparison yeah so what i would like to we can kind of argue about this a little bit because i think we might have some differences so go to the top actually so okay so um and we can go into the the different the four different scenarios more in depth in a little bit i think that'd be good Mm -hmm. um so so Sun Tzu says, and and it, and each it's in there because each chapter it begins with like Sun Tzu says, so it's like almost like Simon says kind of <laughs> yeah, like, or Tzu, like the or meditations Sun Tzu of, uh, or however it's pronounced yeah, yeah exactly yeah so uh, Marcus Aurelius yeah, and, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. It's, like, it's kind of a repetitive kind of notion but mm-hmm. he says it's actually interesting the rule in war is if the forces are ten to one you should surround them right so you should not attack. So it, imagine, in the, this is going to be so many Lord of the Rings references, but in the end of Lord of the Rings, when the very, very end, when Frodo's about to put the, about to get the ring into the into Mordor and they, the, they're at the Black Gate and they're kind of just like outnumbered by so much and the, the enemy just surrounds them in a circle, right? Like when you're 10 to 1, it's not worth attacking. So if there was like 100 bandits, they could just surround this town and, and just call it a day, right? Yes. You just starve them out, right? But as he also says, like besieging a city is the is probably the lowest form of generalship that a general can do because it's the easiest, and you'll probably just waste your own time in a way too. I mean, it's smart in some scenarios, but the best thing to do is to outsmart them before the siege even happens, which is what the samurai do. Yeah. So the first thing you do is outsmart them. The second thing you could do is to let them not join up, so kind of like foil their plans a little bit. The third thing you can do is just be a good attacker, and the fourth thing you can do is just besiege a city, which sometimes is the smartest, but that's it's, but like with their numbers, it's not worth it. Yes. So if it's five to one, you should attack. Like the odds are gonna say if it's five to one, you'll even if you lose one to one guys, you'll still have four. You know, you'll still have four people in the end, right? Uh, if you're twice as numerous, 
you could actually, it actually is smart to divide your army in two and kind of fight two separate battles, right? Is it saying that it's smarter for the weaker force? To no, divide? it's smarter for you. It's smarter for the stronger force. Stronger force. So if they had like 14, 14 bandits, like it might have been smart to actually divide into. I mean, this is all, you know, it's it, it may not, it's not so, exactly so correct. So when the bandits attack, they attack 33 strong down off the hill. Right. And they're immediately confronted with the Western Wall, to which the bandit leader then breaks them into a group of 13 and a group of 12. Yeah, so Sun Tzu is saying that they if they were a little less they could have divided into two and kind of whoops group of 20 and a group of 13 right so like if they were at like a force like just a little bit more than the samurai that might have been smart but because they were five to one they they were in that weird in between where they didn't quite know which which one of the forces was more powerful and it was kind of a quick decision like you go this way you go that way yes they could have they should have kind of stayed as one unit And, and so let's talk about this for a second the bandits are 33 the samurai are seven, but the samurai also have an unknown amount of villagers. Right. There's something around like 50 villagers sure. in there. So that's the interesting point. So I thought about this a lot, and I, I I wrote that although technically more numerous when including the townspeople, the samurai are the only actual trained warriors on the defensive, and they almost employ the um, or deploy the, the townspeople as just a weapon. I'm viewing the townspeople as like a weapon. Like they're just a mass murdering group of bamboo sticks yeah. that like people and it gets pretty fucking intense. Yeah. They just like stab so they're like they're like a giant stab weapon. Yeah. Where like they have to be told where to go. They're like a big like a big gun, like a big sword. Like yeah. obviously there's more people, but they're not making decisions really. They're just kind of dead scared and stabbing. So yes, there's your your that's like almost saying the people within a sieged like a walled city are are worry are like should be counted in this. Like the women and children and the and the, the sickly and the elderly, they're mostly pretty weak people. Like it's not like they're all young, able bodied men. You so know you, what I mean? You, you kinda in a way I, I agree with you that the, the, the townspeople are kind of like if you if you look at the samurai as as seven and you say each samurai has ten villagers that they're controlling, and then those villagers kind of attack as a unit, yeah. you kind of see those villagers as the samurai equal one person, and then the ten villagers equal another person, or maybe you could think of those sure. ten as yeah, like yeah. two people. So really, at most, the samurai are working as a number that's like fourteen or twenty-one most. Yeah. So it's really thirty-three versus twenty-one. Yeah, maybe. If, like, maybe. if you're, if you're trying to block un- out the numbers, it's or unclear something. in the movie like how many the, there actually are. I guess you could have that first scene when they're all gathered together and literally count them one at a time. But I kind of. I had this kind of back and forth in my head while I was watching it too. And I think you're right. They're obviously like the numbers, if you break it down, is a little more similar to that 30 number. But if we're talking about trained warriors, I mean, it's like, I mean, imagine, you know, these, these samurai guys, if, you know, a good warrior will, in a, any movie will be dropping 20 people at a time. You oh, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. So, you know, and then I know it's just set up, but like none of those townspeople could even kill an actual warrior if they tried, unless they had 20 people like poking a bamboo. They were literally <laughs> falling literally, over each other and on the people they were stabbing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, they, and sometimes they could be a net negative by getting in the way. So, yeah. I mean, so basically, you know, if, so right, so if, if, if armies are equally matched, right, if it was one-to-one, you can offer battle if you think it's a favorable condition for you. If you're slightly inferior in numbers, you should avoid the enemy. And if you're much less, you should flee. Mm-hmm. So if you look at this from the samurai's perspective, the, you know, Sun Tzu says they should flee. But the whole point about all of this 
is that these people have home field advantage. There's nowhere to go. They are going to die. They'd rather die or or defeat these people. Like the samurai are there to win or die. Like there's nothing like there's no fleeing. This isn't a campaign in open field. Like they're there knowing that like fleeing is not an option. So like that makes them inherently more dangerous too. And right? if you if you look at it within the historical context, all the samurai no longer have their their city-state tribe anymore. Right. So they've almost adopted the village as their new yeah. home base. But not even, they leave it. I mean, in the end, they're like, we're, we're gonna, just going to leave. Like, they're not staying at the village in the end. They're just exactly, fighting but to fight. I guess what I'm saying is they've been removed from their purpose. And so they've, in, in a way, the samurai, as a, as a cultural construct the right. samurai need the villagers to fulfill their yeah. four-part role it's like in a stand-in kind of yeah. yeah 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 so what i'm getting what i'm getting back to is that the uh the bandits actually have the correct and original strategy right mm-hmm. so the, yes. the seven so sun Tzu asks seven questions which some of these i think could go either way but the first question is which of the two sovereigns is imbued with moral law so it effectively boils down to which of the side are more genuine, which of the side is more more has more, you know, level headedness and in tuneness with the world around them, which which is a more sincere and wise kind of uh um you know setup. And this is kind uh, of uh, help help me understand. I see morality, ability, nature, discipline, strength, training, consistency. What what are these uh seven attributes? These are the seven attributes that are derived from the seven questions that he asked. So that is, uh, Sun Tzu asked. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So these are a lot of them have to do with the general themselves. He puts a lot of weight on like the head of the snake. He kind of puts the weight on if you kill he basically says like if the general dies, like your army is gonna is like gonna fall it's to fucked, it's yeah. gonna fall to ruins regardless. So like some of these have to do with the the kind of attributes of the general themselves. So you're basically can I don't I never caught the name of the bandit leader. Does he have a name? He's literally just called the bandit leader. Yeah. I, when you when you look up the the casting he roster, has an eye patch too. Yeah, he's got this <laughs> crazy freaking mace thing. Yeah. yeah. So you basically you're comparing uh, the bandit leader to Kanbe Shimada, the tactician. So which of the two sovereigns? And oh, also sovereign Sun Tzu is assuming that people are fighting for a king. Uh, in the in this kind of idea of sovereigns versus whatever, but blah, yes. blah, blah. So effectively, the bandit leaders are fighting for some higher power, but I almost view, view this like this little kind of um, bubble in time as like this, the bandit leaders are doing whatever they want and the townspeople are doing whatever they want. Like there's no king telling the bandits to take this town, I don't think. And, maybe, and, maybe, maybe not. And you that, know? That's actually, no, I've when I was doing the research, because everything was broken, yeah. the the farmer in some of the things that I was reading, the farmers actually were turning out better because um, in within the four part social construct, the the daimyo um, would they they technically owned all of the rice production in their city state, right? To the point where the farmers had to give over every. A grain of rice, and then the uh, the daimyo would then gift back mm. enough rice for them to. That's to like, so, like yeah. when the when the whole city state thing fell apart, the farmers actually were put in a position where it's like, yeah. oh, I don't have a boss anymore. So, so they were like, so they were almost like an independent little city state. So that's why I'm, I'm kind of uh, looking at Kambe uh, as like their new sovereign, kind of. He's like their, he's their elected king for like this time period, and it, yeah. it made me think yeah. of. Um, this side panel I have with Cincinnatus, who is uh, um, in like the 1450s uh, B- 
BCE um, in ancient Rome, he was a consul, and Rome had two, Rome actually always had two consuls, right? So they had two two head leaders, right? And then people like Caesar would like take it. So like typically for hundreds and hundreds of years, they had two basically two presidents. So they mm-hmm. balanced power with the Senate and the two consuls. Obviously, one of the consuls was always more important than the other. Blah blah. blah. But in times of war, or in times of like they know the Gauls are attacking, or they know that this the Celts are attacking, like they have to have a campaign this summer and they need to elect somebody to solve the problem. They could give any person in the Senate or one of the consuls absolute power and become a dictator. And the idea would be that the dictator would give up the power once they defeat uh, they defeat the enemy, basically, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of times that worked out terribly. Most of the time, actually, <laughs> it worked out terribly. The yeah. person would defeat the... Would defeat the um, the, win the war over, I mean, the wars then lasted 10 years. They would they would be in power for however long or, you know, and sometimes it was shorter, but then they want to keep the power. They're like, oh, I did all this work. Why don't we let me keep the power, right? But Cincinnatus, um, who was actually looked at as one of the the kind of um, virtuous uh, kind of centers of morality in the founding of the United States, which is the, the, the city Cincinnati is named after, um, he was an old statesman who did that he, you know, he became, he got absolute power over the whole Roman state, basically the whole world at the time, mm-hmm. defeated the armies and literally just like went back to live on his farm. And I think he actually did this multiple times. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, Shimada is kind of like this. He got, he gets called to arms to defend this little city state. And he, at the end, just gives up the power. You know, he easily could have been like, I'm going to try to run this town. You know, he like could have assumed power by force, but he was just like, on to the next one. You know yeah. what I mean? I immediately think of Maximus and Gladiator. Right. Like Maximus was Marcus Aurelius's lead general. He wins the war for, for Marcus Aurelius and then goes, hey, well, Marcus goes, hey, I want you to like stay on as my counsel and maybe you could even lead Rome. And Maximus is like, no, I just kind of want to go back to my family. And then his son kills Marcus and and as he's killing him, he's like, this is why I don't want you to be king, because it's the difference between a virtuous leader who really right. like seeks to save and then remove themselves from which they save and and the non-virtuous leader who seeks to just have control. Right. So clearly the first check of morality goes to the samurai, goes to the good samurai. Right? Yes. Yeah. So we're at one zero. So this specific, the second question specifically asks about the generals, which of the two generals has the most ability. And I think, you know, not knowing a lot about the bandit leader, this could go either way. Maybe he was a great samurai, but I think in the battle, uh, it's proven that Kanbei Shimada, having the advantage of pre- preparing and the knowledge ahead of time, has, I mean, and obviously he doesn't die. He kills everyone who comes within one foot of him. Like he doesn't have, and he doesn't die in the, like he literally is just like, eh. He's just, you know, he pulls up bow and arrow and just starts murking people left and right. Yeah. Like he, he literally, he's pretty quiet most of the time, but when he has to fight, he like, he is, he's on point. You know, he has a really good job of both being smart enough to stay out of the main battle, but yeah. then also kicking ass if the battle comes to him. Right when they draw people in one at a time, like he's just, you know, it's, yeah, he just lets it. Happen. And we'll see that in your in your drawings later. So the third one. Um, which we started talking about is nature and with whom lie the advantages derived from heaven and earth. So heaven in Sun Tzu's size has to actually do with weather, temperature, kind of the forces of the, the, the larger forces of the earth, like which could have been at, would have at that time been of kind of attributed to the godlike kind of features of the way that they're in peace with the world. 
and earth is, you know, distances, um, literally the earth, like the way you dig into the ground, the topography, the kind of tangible items that people can control. So at first glance, the bandit leaders might actually have advantages from the earth perspective by attacking downhill, um, having, you know, obviously having horses is a huge, huge advantage. Um, but the, like you were saying, if you go back to the map of the town real quick, the, um, the samurai create this advantage for themselves because so they're downhill and they're kind of easily attacked in this valley but at every point of 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 confrontation they create a barrier which kind of either gives them a little bit of height like at the bridge Mm -hmm. they give themselves a little bit of height Mm -hmm. um and like at the south fields they give themselves height they basically give themselves a little bit of topo right at the end and make them they come all the way down the hill and then they have to like go up a little bit to attack them yeah they've either created scenarios where the enemies can only come in one at a time or the enemies are forced into a lower right. elevation. So the the actual position of the town is a bad is a bad position from a large scale strategic um, battles. Uh, literally, the bandits come in off of a three hundred foot yeah. tall hill. I literally I found the like the field that they yeah. did this battle. So in. if the bandits were smart, they would have just sat up there with arrows if they had them and just or, rained it down on. Or them. just torched the town when they got. They should have just torched the town at least halfway through. I mean. Sensu also says, like, it's obviously best to keep the town as a resource, not destroy it, let them, you know, produce barley free every year. But by the time half their guys died, they should have just burned the town down. Like, they easily yes. could have done that. Now, the, the only reason I could see for them not burning the town down is the farmers had already harvested the entire rice crop and had it stored within the town itself. Yeah, but, like, once so, they, I mean, once they got to cut their losses at some point, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, of course. Like, yeah. at some point, you just throw glitter in somebody's face and run away. Like, yeah, exactly. you, like you, <laughs> you just go, I've like, lost. They them. were just too yeah. too proud and too dumb. Like, they, yeah. once they lost that, once they realized they lost the advantage of, the, of this wall, the first attack, they should have went right back the hill and planned a little bit. But instead, they went, no, go. Yeah. And then every single time, they were just well, foiled. The, yeah, so the, I, I think there's there's well, I, okay. Let's let's go through the rest of these okay. these this chart first, and then and we we'll can get, talk about strategy. We'll get into the actual specific four, yeah. the four attacks. We'll get into the yeah. four attacks. Yeah. So discipline. So on which side? This could have gone either way, and I give it to both sides. On which side is discipline more rigorously enforced? Right. And let me know what you think about this. So on one side, the samurai are. He's kind of you know he is. Uh, you know, keeping a tight ship, but sometimes the guys run away and sometimes they go out in the middle of, you know, the samurai kind of have this little, but they are kind of strict to their plan and they stick to the plan and it works out for them. But the bandits are like, their discipline is fear of death kind of in a way. It's like, you will literally kill, I'll literally kill you if you don't do this. So what do you think on that one? I, I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head with both of them. The, the, the bandit leaders obviously have some kind of social structure that keeps them loyal to the bandit tribe. There's something about plunder and money. The, yeah, there, there, it's like pirate code, bandit code. There's this idea that you belong to this group who's going to screw over. You're, you're going to screw over people around you, and then everybody benefits from whatever the spoils are, right. and that that kind of keeps you alive. And so it's like every it's, it's almost all for one and one for all. We're just doing evil versus good. Right. And with with uh, so it's it's kind of like a. Uh, um, like a plateau strategy. Everybody's just equal because they're all just plundering. Where with with Kembe and the samurai, I think their advantage is that there actually is a military structure and the seven samurai innate they, they understand the samurai structure because that's what they're professionals within that. So 
you have Kembe, who was selected as the first samurai. So he's got the home field advantage of being the first to be selected. He's also appears to be one of the oldest. So he's got the traditional Japanese uh, age um, seniority. Uh, and and then he was, in fact, one of the higher-ranking generals. So he also has professional seniority. And then amongst his team, he has a series of professional samurai who... Bowman, a swordsman, a crazy guy, like yeah. a disciple. Like he has, everyone has, yeah, every, everyone has their own strengths. And, right? and so the, the discipline for the samurai is that they have both the, the original, they, they have the, their professional structure, and then they also have their individual skill sets yeah. that they're then teaching to the, to the farmer. So it's, it's almost, you have two strategies of discipline. You have the all for one and one for all, but we're doing evil uh, discipline. And then you have the military hierarchy and speciality discipline. So I'd agree. Right. They both yep. they, they both have a discipline. It's just different in their structure. Yep. I totally agree. So the next question is, which army is stronger? It's the simplest straight up question. I yeah. think it'd have to go to the bandits, right? Ag- agree. They have numbers. They have, you know, they have horses. Horses are huge. I mean, 30, that's almost like 30 more people. They, they also have an unknown amount of bows and they have three muskets. Yeah. They just have, they, they have technological strength. They, they're literally, yeah, they're idiots. I mean, they're just too aggressive. They weren't expecting it. Yeah. So, um, this so the next question is on which side of the offices of the officers and men more highly trained. So, so I was looking at your chart. I want you to say what you're going to say, but I, I almost I spent this is the one that I spent the most time asking the question. Who, yeah, who and, had it? So I'll I'll, I'll I'll try to back it up. So officers. So I almost this is the training one, right? Yes. Okay. So I almost view the officer. So there's a part in the book where they talk about. If your officers are are stronger than your men, you have incompetence among the ranks. But if your men are stronger than your officers, you have insubordination, right? So this has a, this has to do with like the officers, and I'm almost viewing the seven samurai as seven officers, mm-hmm. and the pe- townspeople as these kind of pawns, which kind of contradicts a little bit of my my townspeople as weapon scenario. But I, I'll go with it. I almost view the bandits as a one officer, thirty two men scenario where the actual person making all the decisions for everybody is the leader and everyone else is kind of running rampant. So on which side of the officers more highly trained as a whole, I think the samurai take this because they have like seven very competent officers versus one erratic general. And that's kind of where I was getting with that. So I was actually viewing it from who has had the most training for the scenario. So, 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 like, with the bandits, they've obviously yeah. had hundreds of hours of just being bandits yeah. and looting. And so, really, you have 33 trained bandits. And so, I was like, oh, well, here you go. The bandits would win over the samurai because you have 33 professionals over seven professionals. But then, when I looked at it at the context, through the, through the context of the actual battlefield, you have seven people who are trained, who, who have a specialty within their own training but then you have seven um samurai who are trained within the battlefield itself that they've constructed and you have the entire village who's also trained uh, within their their battlefield that they've constructed and and the bandits are really only trained to attack uh un unstructured and and undefended or lightly defended lightly yeah yes but so then i started to view it through the the lens of 
yeah, they're trained to like rape and pillage and burn and and do whatnot, but they're not trained to handle a siege. Right. And then I ended up with, yeah. oh, of course, it should be the Kambi and the Samurai. Take that one. Yep. So the last one, which this also could go either way too, but I, I think consist which army is there greater consistency in both reward and punishment? And I think there's just a very very vast consistency in the way that the bandits are like the bandits are going to be punished or rewarded. Like it's like they know exactly what they're getting. They're getting consistently rewarded or consistently punished. Like the the, the samurai, they kind of have this, which could help them in actual like real battle. Like, okay, fuck it. We're going to kill these people, take their plunder, and we're going to get the gold and the barley. and Not gold, but we're going to get their resources. They know like they know what their reward and punishment are. The samurai, like they're all like struggling emotionally and internally with like where they are in the world. So half of them, you know, died doing it, and half, you know, the, at the end, none of them are like super happy, but they're just doing their job. Like they're not like they don't know what their reward is. Like they don't know. They know their punishment could be death, but like they seem okay with it. Like they just, it's not as black and white for them, which could be a disadvantage because they they don't have as much as a of a motivation like the bandits might the bandits are very probably very motivated by getting the plunder and like that might be why they're so aggressive because that's all they really have to you know live on basically it's like a pirate mutiny scenario when you know you hear the stories and they don't they don't you know pirates don't get the ships and then the pirates become restless and then there's a mutiny like as long as they have the reward and as long as they know there's a punishment waiting there for them if they they if they like do something wrong they're walking the plank like then the ship will be fine you know what i mean yeah so that's, I, yeah. I, I agree with this. I would just layer on the the historical context of the the bandit leaders. I, I agree that the yeah. consistency with the bandit bandit leaders are that they are being rewarded every time they plunder and and the samurai really aren't gaining a reward because they understand the the samurai more than the bandits understand the larger context of their country and what's happening at this moment in time. And the samurai understand that, look, even if we win this battle, we've literally lost the war of our country right. and our age of the samurai is about to go. Yep. And, and I think that's kind of why it ends on that note of the, the, um, the farmers are the real winners. And, and, and even though we won this battle, <laughs> we've lost the war for the farmers out there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pour one out for the farmers, but like, like the, the like the samurai, it's it's kind of like you know that Romeo and Juliet die from the first what? like sentence and spoiler the, no yeah, I'm just yeah. the, like the 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 context like like two star-crossed lovers like kill themselves that's how Romeo and Juliet starts out and this movie starts off the same way the samurai are in this state of removal and and now let's show you a story where they're trying to save this village and you get to the end and Cambay just goes all right, we won the battle, but I mean, we got about five more years of yeah. acknowledgement on this one. Half our friends just died. So. Yeah. So all right, so all right, so we went through the seven of these. Where did where did you end up with so, how you ranked it? I mean, it, it, I mean, it looks like you know just but from preparedness, from morality, kind of the general ability, uh, creating these natural barriers on their side um, with more intense training. The, the the wise kind of outduels the outduels the uh, the strong in this one so advantage uh, samurai yeah yeah I mean they won yeah and, and as they say well um, I mean the bandits I think you know we could have gone into this saying the bandits were idiots but like they had some good they had some good strategy I mean a, like Sun Tzu says a wise general makes a point of forging 
on the enemy. One cartload of the enemy's provisions is equivalent to 20 of one's own. So imagine when you go buy that hamburger from McDonald's, I mean, you just buy it and you get it. You get that hamburger. But like, if you had to prepare every ingredient in that hamburger yourself, you had to grow the lettuce, you had to make the wheat, you had to get the meat, get the cow, get it here, it would have taken you 20 times as much more effort. You know what I'm saying? So the, 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 the summer that I spent in Rome, I decided I was going to try and make myself a Chipotle burrito. And when you go to Chipotle, <laughs> ingredients is yeah, yeah, when you go to Chipotle, I think a, uh, like a burrito is like eight or nine dollars. It cost me twenty three dollars to make a Chipotle burrito because, like, I had to buy a whole pack of yeah. um, freaking tortillas. I had to buy like a can of corn. Like the the provisions to make the the moment is is completely outweighs um, the home field advantage. Yeah, yeah. So that I mean, moral of the story. So so let's jump into. We can kind of bring up some more of these uh, facts as we go along, but. Let's jump into the four the four attacks and the four ways that and this is probably be our last major topic the four ways in that the um, the townspeople structured their uh, structured their village. So, I I, I I approached understanding the the actual battle from two fronts. The first was I really wanted to know where this battlefield was, so I figured out where the film location was, which is on the Crazy, man. the um, yeah, uh, Izu Peninsula, and they actually targeted to a specific field, which is is kind of nice. And what's awesome about um, this particular terrain, uh, which is part of a national park, is this this whole series of valleys that are like three hundred uh, foot high hills. And then these river valleys that run in between them, and the river valleys are where all these villages uh, cropped up, and and they would grow these rice farms. And so the village sits on the western hill, um, and to the east is a big rice paddy field. So the the village, I mean, you can see it from a lot of the um, the aerial uh, establishing shots that the village is kind of semi embedded into the hill. And, and then just to the east of it is um, all these um, uh, uh, rice fields that they're, they're growing everything in. And by the, the nature of the positioning of the, the village itself, it creates these four gateways. Uh, a western one that uh, is it's almost facing the hill that the bandits come down. It's got a southern and an eastern um, uh, entrance that empty into the uh, the rice fields, and then has this northern entrance that goes off into, uh, I think Kembe calls it the Grove of Death, which is this like beautiful place where all these great flowers go, and you have the love interest collecting flowers. But really, it's this like heavily covered, uh, foggy terrain that they absolutely know they cannot go into, or they'll just be picked off because all the bandits are going to be hiding in this woods. Mm-hmm. And so, what they what they've very cleverly done is. They believe that the bandits are going to assault them on this western hill. And so uh, they immediately say, let's just build our greatest defense on this western hill to completely dissuade the bandits from using the height advantage. And it completely works. As soon as the bandits come off the hill, they reach this western wall. And are, the, the western wall isn't just a bunch of logs set up um, 
as like a fence. It's it's a series of logs. They've got bamboo spears sticking out. And as a defensive strategy, they even have a series of hay bales that position the samurai and the men at some distance from the wall so they can use ranged weapons like the bow and arrow to pick off the pick off any of the um the bandits who decide to come over so as as like a tiered structure they've they've set up this first wall as completely um inimpenetrable to just dissuade the use of that that uh the topographic advantage then the south and the eastern wall and it's very I mean, this is kind of an aside, but it's very interesting the way that the map is set up. You view the map as if it's viewed from the southern entrance to the town. But in reality, the entire town is rotated 90 degrees. And that which is like the south entrance is to the southeast and that which is the west is to the west-east. And Kurosawa just basically goes... I'm 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 like not going to overcomplicate this yeah, thing. Yeah, I'm yeah. literally just going to call it north, south, no, east, and west. The way, you, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So so <laughs> the west, east. Yeah. <laughs> Got to check that west, east every time. Exactly. Right in the middle. So so the the south and the eastern um, uh, entrances, they they set it up as two different strategies to build in um, defensive, uh, either height or picking people off. So the south flooded field, they set up. They use the rice paddies to create this in, uh, impassable zone that the horses can't get through, which forces the bandits to get off their horses. And as they start to walk through the fields one by one, um, uh, Gurobi with the the archer, he can uh, pick them off. And Gurobi, like Gurobi and uh, Katsushiro, they are the freaking like triathletes of of the of, of the defense because they are literally running. Mostly the disciple guy Katsushiro. He's literally like sprinting back and forth to tell people what's up. Yeah, if you if you look at if you look at the the four defensive uh, the four cardinal defenses, Kambi um, has positioned one samurai leader at each of the four. Uh, at this point during the movie, we've actually had one samurai pass away. So it, it's it's uh, yeah. RP. It's seven samurai, but during the actual battle, it's six. X-Man. Mm-hmm. X-Man died, right? Yep. You have one samurai at each of the four cardinal directions, can be in the middle, and then uh, Katsushiro is basically the scout who's running around providing information. He's the he's the informant. He's he's the telegraph, constantly mm-hmm. going between the different. And that and that's interesting because in in Art of War, he says that if you if you if you reinforce everywhere, everywhere is weak. Yeah. Right? But if you reinforce your right, your left is weak. So you have to kind of pick and choose where you reinforce because you can't spread yourself too thin. So the scale of the town is just small. It's just small enough that they can kind of afford to have the townspeople like literally sprinting around with giant bamboo sticks, like waiting to kill a horse when they see it. It's <laughs> crazy, man. Well, what I, what I what I also love is can be so smart about who he chooses to be where. So. I was just talking about the eastern and the the southern gates as being the field gates. If you look at the eastern gate, it's not only a field gate, it's also the deepest terrain around the entire town. And and guess who he puts in charge of the mm-hmm. most well defended uh part of the of the town? He puts uh kitsu chiyo the the crazy samurai betty sue 100,000 generations of flowers yeah the, crazy look, guy when you look when <laughs> yeah when you look at the the like where the when you look at which defenses are weak and which ones are strong 
they give the crazy samurai the strongest defended location. And the location. farthest away from the initial attack and with the largest buffer in front of it. Exactly. So he basically doesn't trust him. But yeah. yeah. And and it's so well defended. You have, um, uh, you have like... Well, he even deserts it sometimes. <laughs> yeah. He like leaves it to go get a <laughs> yeah. rifle. He like runs on the other side and shakes his ass in front of the bandits. <laughs> yeah. Like this thing is so well defended. He's basically just fucking around. And he has five swords and he just puts them in the dirt and starts like... He's just like, oh, I'll need them later. Like, yeah. But I mean, he does come through in the end, though. Yeah. So you have you have his right hand man handling the initial assault. You have the archer handling the the uh, the lighter of the two uh, field buffer. You have the crazy samurai who's basically put in charge, like the Fort Knox side. Like nobody's gonna <laughs> yeah. get through yeah. this. And then you yeah. have the master swordsman who, who literally has no defenses. He's just standing there. Yeah. <laughs> He's literally just standing he, there. They, everybody just goes, you are literally our like ace in the hole. Yeah. We're gonna put just, you where the onslaught just chill happens. chill there for a second. Yeah. And and that's where they create that like 300 moment. Where yeah, did you see that note? I, I kind of I just said 300 as like a cue to. Yeah, yeah. So like the um, uh, Sun Tzu actually has a whole chapter about um, different types of passes, and he said, with, with with regard to narrow passes, if you can occupy them first, let them be strongly garrisoned and await the advent of the enemy. And it says, whoever is first in the field and awaits the coming of the enemy will be fresh for the fight. Whoever is second will arrive exhausted. Yep. And then finally, they say, with by holding out bait, which they literally do with that dummy. Oh, yeah. By holding out bait, he keeps him on the march. Then, with a body of picked men, he lies for him and wait. So basically they do, they take all three of those strategies. They get there first. They, they make a very, very narrow pass. They have picked men. He literally picks his best fighter and keeps most of the town people here for most of the, for most of the, uh, for most of the um, battle and just wait to kind of corner these guys one at a time. Like much like Leonidas and the Spartans uh, in uh, obviously the movie 300, they wait in the pass and their phalanx formation and the Persians just start throwing you know, whatever they can at them, and one at a time, they just or literally in that movie, thousands at a time, they just murder them. But one at a time, the the um, the bandits don't uh, adapt their strategy, and they just keep keep attacking. And it's actually really, really, really interesting how they uh, the tactician kind of the master tactician is kind of standing behind. And you want to talk about what that happens when the when the one horse enters the town, basically? I mean, it's such it's such it's it's so beautifully designed. I mean, just backing up for a second. You have the bandits who are coming off of this hill. That like when 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 you look at the battlefield, the bandits can clearly go. All right, let's just attack from the hill. Like it's immediately where we want to attack from. Then they go. All right, walls blocked off. Let's attack from the east. Ah oh, shit! There's like flooded fields and there's archers picking us off. Well, let's not go back to the hill because the hill's actually open and they have an archer. And we'll just get picked off from the hill. So very quickly, Kembe's eliminated three choices and and he's eliminated three choices and the choice that he left is the wooded glen where the bandits are going to go oh let's literally go where we have tree coverage like and amazingly they've they have not built a wall yeah oh there's no protection there, here. there's no protection on the northern side happen. there's no protection yeah. and we have tree cover we can literally bum rush them whenever we want and so yeah there's four openings but really in reality kembe has gone you have one option and and then as far as the option that he sets the table for the the bandits keep rushing in uh to to break through this uh this initial 
there's this cat and mouse game where Kembe allows Kitsu to make the 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 breached gate appear slightly weak, and mm-hmm. and the bandits can ride past really quickly, and then as soon as they get into the center of the of the the, the town, Kembe is waiting there with another group who just like <laughs> surrounds. It. Then yeah. the, the numbers flip. It goes from yeah. thirty three against seven to you have like thirty villagers all with spears that yeah. just jump on one. Even bandit. the women, like even the women are like that one scene when they just like bum rush that guy. It's just yeah. start, they literally stab people with like, and it must not. I mean, it must have been a slow death too, like dull bamboo. Like, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> God. Um, so I mean. The diagrams that Austin made too are really, really great. Uh, I would encourage the the uh, you guys to look at these as well, whoever's listening. Um, but you know, it's a really simple diagrammatic way of explaining the kind of war tactics involved in this. So, um, to end or one of the last points I would like to make, I think we should talk about the like what we talked about in the beginning, this idea of guns and weaponry and the kind of evolution of how war uh, moved along. So. Obviously, the samurai um, are these like stark traditionalists with their katanas and their bows, and to a degree, the staffs and the bamboo. But you know, there's this kind of there's this kind of we're at the crux of the point where modern warfare is actually beginning here, where guns are starting to where where literally you can be obviously with a bow in ancient times you could shoot someone from far away, but it was obviously much harder and much more of a skill. Um, the the gun you could you could now begin to shoot someone from a distance with very very little skill. Yeah, this the sword had kind of run Japan for the last like seven hundred years. Yeah, and then or all all eternity, really. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, and and then you have the film taking place in fifteen eighty, and and guns had just been introduced to Western Japan in like fifteen fifty. So guns have had like thirty years to kind of start slowly march east towards yeah. this town. So let me ask you this: so the gun, there's two scenes where the master swordsman and the crazy one. Both go and steal guns. Yes. So, in one way, taking a gun from the from the enemy is uh, a mental victory, right? Like you take their you take their kind of you have a gun now, and they're not sure like if you know how to use it, and it's kind of in their head. They're they're, they're starting to be a little bit, um, you know, more cautious. But it's also they literally have less guns, so like you're taking away some of their physical, right? Some of their physical weapons. So, but I wonder like. <sighs> The uh, when the guy when the samurai take the guns, it almost seems like they don't want to do with them, or like they're just like, wow, look at this novel thing I have in my hand. They don't really like consider it as like something they're gonna like use. You know, it just seems like they're they're kind of just they're kind of mocking it in a way, right? Yeah, right. And the the comparison between the the two scenes where they take the guns, where the one guy, the the master swordsman, the sincere, more genuine kind of older warrior takes the gun and just like ah whatever you can have it and then the the other he literally takes a nap after yeah he literally goes down and like just nods off he's like i have to get some sleep and then the 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 crazy guy goes and steals the gun and like makes a huge deal out of it but he you know it kind of shows his lack of humility so he fires the gun what what do you think about the symbol of of the gun and how how that plays into the kind of the end of this film where both of these guys actually fall to the gun i mean the the immediate like in your face like symbolism is the gun along with the change in the empire is just replacing the samurai. The, the, the empire is coming back and the gun is replacing the sword. And, and so just as a symbolic transitional object, it's, it's just there to symbolize 
um, that which is both replacing their profession and will literally murder them because they have distance advantage. And in a way, I kind of saw the prehistory weapon and the modern weapon comparison as the bamboo evolved into the sword and the bow evolved into uh, the bamboo spear evolved yeah. into the sword and then the bow, the long bow evolved into the match matchlock musket. And so you you have this kind of primitive arms race happening. Uh, but if, if we're looking at the symbolism between the two characters, I, I, I think it's supposed to symbolize the two ways that you approach adversity in that the 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 master swordsman he is he's he's almost it, it in a way i almost feel like he is more um what's the word he's more ignorant to the value of the musket right. as a tool than than um than uh the crazy samurai in that he he realizes it will kill him, so he just removes it, and then he goes back to the trust of his sword because yeah. he's he's yeah, perfected yeah, yeah. that. And in a way, you you understand that he probably would be able to kill off more bands with the sword just out of the proficiency yeah. of it. But with the crazy samurai, he 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 gains the gun, and the first thing he does is like run out onto the battlefield. And like sh- he falls over shooting at the bandits. Yeah. Like so at least yeah. at least there's like an acknowledgement of like, hey, I took your awesome toy. And I'm gonna friggin' like try to new, shoot you. It's like, like getting a new iPhone, but you're like, you know, your 80 year old grandmother like would would rather not have a phone at all. You know. Yeah. What I mean? So yeah. But I think like the 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 more important difference is the the kind of the lesson that's being projected at the audience through these two people, um, the master swordsman approaches the idea of capturing one of these muskets as a collective they make they make a choice together to capture one of these and he goes off he volunteers and and he does it um with without any attachment to his his like honor or or um any increase in his self-worth he just sees it as a thing that should be done and the crazy samurai goes after this gun as is a very selfish act to find value, val- like valor and importance in in this war, and and two of his uh, his villagers end up dying because of it, and I think because there's a breach in that wall, that's actually why uh, uh, Gorobi uh, ends up getting killed as well, and so like the it's it's almost it's showing the selfishness of the crazy samurai's choice and the repercussions that. That has. Oh yeah, the um, the uh, yohai, the uh, villager guy dies. Yes. Yeah. 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 All the villagers were pretty un- un- unredeeming characters, though. There wasn't like a nice villager. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I guess one one guy that we kind of have not mentioned at all was the younger villager whose wife was captured by the bandits who had become a. Yeah, I could have done without that side plot. I don't think we need to talk about it much. When when I was doing research, I was uh, reading through a. Uh, um, it was actually a, a, a um, what is it, humanity humanities? Yeah, it was a humanities elective, and they used the Seven Samurai as as uh, like a cultural reference and when it brings up the villager and his wife it literally goes um random side plot and then it, <laughs> it says the villager and his wife like yeah. it like it's fully acknowledged as this is this is just a layer and of he's like that was my wife like yeah. it was just, i don't know yeah that's yeah. the good but i mean yeah that's the kind of stuff that but I, I, I bring it up because he was also in a moment of selfishness 
to address the, I mean, kind of understandable selfishness, but they had gone there as a collective attack group, and he was very selfish at that moment um, to chase after his wife, and when the woodcutter samurai goes to save him, he gets shot as collateral damage by by one of the weapons. And so, like, I I think what it represents is any time one of the members broke rank, yeah. It didn't affect them, but it had severe consequences on the collective. And I think that's the way like Japanese culture works. It's not about the individual, it's about the collective. And these people put themselves in the place of the individual and and it had repercussions. So yeah, and it's almost just such a shame, right? Like when someone with such high training, with such like immense life you know a lifetime of training uh you know in this methodology of building up your swords your sword craft like the 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 master swordsman just gets one piece of metal is flung at him at a high speed and he's dead you know and the gun is like that's just the whole crux of modern warfare right it kind of takes away the the whole point of of training in in a a lot of ways you know what i mean do you you think that's there so we see that it doesn't matter whether you are a farmer samurai or the greatest samurai that ever lived the gun was just going to destroy your culture like the time had come and samurai's out and the gun's in. But think of this. You could have a five-year-old child with a gun in his hand and you could have the, the best swordsman in the world standing there. Yeah. If the five-year-old child knew how to aim the gun, he would win 99 times out of 100. Do you know what one of my favorite scenes in all of cinema is? What? It's Indiana Jones in the um, very first movie where he's in the bazaar and mm. the like the the opposing force has like tracked him down and you have that huge arabian saber man do all the sword tricks yeah, and then he just, just pulls out the gun yeah, yeah, shoots, and just shoots him that's and like walks a, away that's like his whip too yeah yeah exactly but yeah. it's almost such a shame you know it, and it's like i really wished more of the samurai lived in the end but you know i guess the the last scene when they you know, you could really analyze that, the freeze frame when you see the four graves and the three guys standing in front of it. And it's kind of this, you hear the villagers um, in the distance back to work like nothing ever happened in the rice fields chanting. It's It really puts the the, um, the villagers in this background and gives kind of a kind of a looming, you know, just tone of their life's going to go on. Like, thanks for the help. But like, you know, you guys really aren't one of us and, you know, we appreciate it, but do you, you know, we fed you and that's what we agreed to do. And the samurai are like, well, we made it through this one, buddy, and maybe we'll do this again. And it's kind of just the, uh, the disciple looking on like, man, what, what am I going to do next? (laughs) So, I mean, I, and you really do see the symmetry of the three and the four and the kind of all seven are back together one last time. And they finally, I think at that point, they finally all like in the same, kind of in the same brotherhood, you know? Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a great ending. So um, we can cut this out if we want, but should we do? I think we should do like a rating, like a rating system. I know we're doing like chicken manis, but yeah, I don't I know if that's say, the, seven I, chicken manis. Should, should we do like a, um, uh, a star rate? Like, should we actually? I think we should give a, a rating. Rank should, it from should, one to seven samurais. Sure, let's do it. Let's okay. That's fine. Let's rank it from one to seven samurais. Well, three. There's there's six circles in a triangle. I like how you actually made the uh, the symbol. All right. So from one to seven samurais, where would you rank this film? I mean, I I think it's a perfect. So film. if you had to give your favorite film ever, like if like as we go through this, you're gonna have to compare. If you had to give your favorite film ever, seven out of seven samurais. Maybe this is one of your favorites. 
is this is this a seven out of seven for you, or is it six point five? If like there's no room, there's no room. It's a seven. It's it. It's there. So my my favorite film ever is is Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. So that's a seven samurais. That a seven samurais. Yeah, the, the I I consider Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid like a perfect movie. So that's and your hundred percent on Rotten that's Tomatoes. A, that's a hundred percent. So what? So it's always good to scale your. So what's that? If that's a hundred, is this a ninety six? What do you What do you punt it at? I would I would give this six and a half samurais. All right, six and a half. I think that's fair. I'll yeah. give it six. I'll give it six. Yeah, yeah. To the beginning, I'll give the second half six, the first half five. Yeah, (laughs) so maybe I'll give it a five point seven five, but I'll uh, I'll lean towards six. I would give the second half like seven out of seven samurais, and the first half I'd I'd actually give the first half a five as well, just just because I agree with the sentiment that it could be tightened up, but I I think it's tightened up. It could be tightened up very loosely. I'll watch it. once I watch it a second time, I'll read. I think this is kind of one of those books you got to read twice. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's. Uh, I just didn't know what to expect, and I also was hadn't watched many time period films or samurai films of this nature. I tend to lean towards modern kung fu, like, and uh, it, it the pace of it was just very different, right? The Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragons, the Ip Man sagas, all the different, you know, all the different uh, Kill Bill stuff. I'm just so into that stuff that I was like when's the fighting coming? And then when I realized like it wasn't going to actually be like a, there was going to be like no badass like sword stuff. Like it was a little bit, but it was most, all the kills were like, wow, like, you know, I, I love like badass sword fighting. So I, I think I was holding on to that a little too long. And then I finally, I finally got into the strategic room, the strategery of the war in the end. So, but, but do you think, I think it feels very real that way though. Like, oh, like yeah, it feels yeah, like yeah, yeah. we could have showed up on that scene and yeah. been, like we would have been on the farmer side of the skill set. Well, it's like in Tony Hawk's Pro Skater when you can do three backflips and crazy moves in there, but then they came out the, the game Skate, right? And you have to actually legit do like it's really hard to do like one kickflip. You know, yeah. you got you got to be realistic at times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great movie. This is, is this is one of my favorites. This well, yeah, we'll have to watch another Kurosawa at some point. What were what was your friend telling you? What was their recommendation? Oh, I forget the names, but he has a couple other films. And actually, the main actor. Um, I looked up their Wikipedia's on the different actors, and I was like, I was trying to figure out these guys are like big film stars, you know. And this, the main actor, the tactician guy, mm-hmm. was in twenty of Kurosawa's thirty films. Really? Yeah, he was like in every film. And the the crazy guy, the, he was in a lot of them too. He was like the biggest star at all because he's yeah. on the front of the movie posters. Yep. Like he's the big. I think he's the big like. He was like the Brad Pitt kind of thing, you know. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to look in these guys and see if there are any other films. So. All right. All right. That's a wrap. All right, man. Hey, everyone. Ken and I just wanted to thank you again for listening to the episode. The Table Sessions podcast is produced and edited by me, Austin Raymond, and Ken Filler, and is a product of The Table Sessions Media, the collaborative platform for audio, visual, and written content. Our theme music was created by Dan Filler. You can find more from Dan on bandcamp.com such as his album, As the Soil Turns Red. If you like what you heard, you can visit our website, thetablesessions.com, to check out our full range of content. You can also follow us on Instagram at Table Sessions, where we post photos and content from each episode. Also, if you'd like to support our cause in more tangible ways, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash thetablesessions for exclusive updates and more. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you again next episode.